coming to the end of our second day, practicing together, sharing this space, this time, this journey, and having the chance to reflect, contemplate <coughs> our, our own being, the different moods, the feelings, the changes of the day, changes of energy, sometimes maybe good energy, sometimes dullness or sleepiness. <coughs> and also a chance to hear each other in the discussion, which is uh, very good. I wanted to say, to start tonight talking a little bit about um, the Buddha, the historical Buddha, and uh, how that's, how I've related to this notion of, of the historical Buddha, which can seem very distant for most of us. And I noticed uh, over the years in the Dharma scene, sometimes there's a reluctance for people to say they're Buddhists because uh, well, for all sorts of reasons. And even uh, here at Gaia House, uh, on some of the literature, there's an emphasis on Dharma and uh, talking about, when they talk about the tradition of dana, they talk about it coming from two and a half thousand years ago, but not necessarily saying it came from the Buddha, which is fine, but it's, it, it, it is something that's uh, um, happened in the West, that, that we have this, um, perhaps a reaction against institutions, traditions, because perhaps we've been wounded or burnt by, by them or distrustful of them um, and there's very good reason for that and I had that too I have ambivalence around tradition even though I spent 12 years in a very traditional <laughs> orthodox <laughs> uh, school of Buddhism which you probably couldn't get more traditional um, which I'm very grateful for but there's still uh, a sense of ambivalence about institutions and hierarchies and especially religions that tend to perhaps come over as being patriarchal, not having a place or space or support in some ways for uh, the appreciation of the feminine, which is so important um, for our healing of the earth, the healing of our, ourselves, to integrate that. And I noticed uh, uh, over the years, though, in, in, uh, that a, a sense of connectedness has very slowly arisen for me with, with the Buddha. Um, and I also feel that it's important to acknowledge in doing this work, if we're, if we're um, using these teachings, if we're uh, drawing inspiration, energy, support, to acknowledge that lineage of the Buddha through all the different schools, all the different beings through the last two and a half thousand years, the different Sanghas that have uh, given their time and their energy to, to keep that lineage going. Uh, some of the great masters that we hear about, realized ones, and then those that one doesn't know about, those uh, monks and nuns that lay people that just probably spent their life being devoted to this kind of practice that perhaps never were known about or 
recorded, but it's uh, but we have inherited something of their efforts, of their their inspiration, their devotion. I always found when talking about taking refuge in the Buddha, for me originally the Buddha came across partly because of the nature of the Pali Canon, which is rather dry in its uh, in its um, approach, tends to be. <laughs> the Buddha sort of tended to come across a bit like a stern kind of uh, father figure, slightly kind of um, Kind of telling people off here and there, oh, not so, not like this, oh monks, oh stupid monks, you haven't quite got it right. <laughs> Go back to the drawing, we'll begin again. And I, it was hard for me to get a sense of very much benevolence there. It was sort of uh, it, it, all my projections about um, negative projections about that kind of father image seemed to mm-hmm. land on top of the Buddha, uh, which wasn't all <laughs> that helpful. And uh, so in some ways, in, in not, I, I think I dealt with that by not very consciously looking at this historical figure, just sort of bypassing, uh, getting to the Dhamma, the teachings, that's where it's at, here and now, uh, which is true actually. <laughs> um, I think it was when I first went to Bodh Gaya, which is, I know some of you have visited Bodh Gaya, which is this sort of, uh, it's almost in a godforsaken place. <laughs> in the middle of Bihar, the poorest state in India, which is so dry and hot and everyone, uh, one feels that everyone uh, in that town when you go into Budgaya wants something from you. <laughs> so it's a very demanding place to be, very, actually a very difficult place to be in some ways and a very crazy place to be, There's a lot of uh, different uh, scenes going on. Indian population and the peasants around which are extremely poor and if you walk outside of the town of Budgai to try and visit some of the other sites where the Buddha lived and practiced, like there was a cave that Kitty Saro and I walked to, a cave where he practiced before he walked down along the river to the banks of the river where he took the milk rice from Sujata before he sat under the tree, the Bodhi tree, to realize his enlightenment. And this cave is a very small, um, it's hollow in, in, a, in a rock face, and it's quite a long, dusty walk across paddy fields to get there. It takes a couple of hours or so across the villages. And, uh, and as we neared the cave, walking there, there were just, uh, it was like walking, walking through Dante's Inferno. There were just uh, scores of, of people that seemed uh, so wretched. They're very poor, very thin. Uh, uh, I don't quite know what they were. I guess they were there because of the tourists going to the cave, but all sort of reaching out, grasping, grabbing at, at you. And it, it, felt, it, it felt very daunting to sort of walk this gauntlet of people needing, wanting, uh, desiring. And then finally to get up to this cave, which is looked after by a Tibetan community. And then inside the cave, when you finally manage to struggle into this, this uh, cave, which is very, very hot, there are candles burning. There's an Indian pujari in there that wants some money, <laughs> which is pretty standard practice. And a lovely Tibetan monk just sitting there, very peaceful. Uh, 
And you think, yeah, I mean, the Buddha must have endured a lot, really. I mean, we, we find it patient to be patient with one day, but he endured a lot um, to get to, to, where, to where he realized the unshakable heart of deliverance. Uh, in the course of my time in Budgaya, I went twice. And the first time it really struck me is that in the middle of this craziness of, of, the, of Budgaya, there's the temple. Uh, stupa and the first time I actually went and sat inside the stupa I just felt a tremendous sense of stillness and I think it, maybe it was the energy from the Buddha who must have been enormously powerful really or perhaps all the devotion from the people that have been there for <coughs> over the, few, the last few centuries a um, few thousands, thousand years but whatever, I just felt this sense of timelessness, uh, stillness, like something just stopped, the mind just stopped and something opened in me. And, I, and it was the first time that I had this sense of the, the mind of the Buddha as being very vast, very unlimited and, and totally compassionate, which was important for me to sense that uh, because of my earlier perceptions of this rather sort of hard... Uh, almost uh, unemotional, dry figure. <clears throat> and uh, I felt totally accepted. And whether that was anything to do with the energy of the Buddha, I don't know. But there was something that just felt, I'm okay. <laughs> Which actually <clears throat> was a nice thing to feel, an important thing to feel. Because a lot of the time, I don't know about you, but there can be this sense of, I'm not okay. I'm not okay yet, I have to do this, do that, practice more, get more peaceful, uh, find out more, uh, do more work on myself, get more therapy, and so on and so forth, which might all be the case, but just to feel fundamentally a sense of okayness about one's being, in spite of all the neuroses and hang-ups and imperfections. And, and then that night I sat on my own, um, by the Bodhi tree, by the Vajra seat, they call it the, the place on, on the earth, apparently where the Buddhas, the only place on the earth that the Buddhas of each aeon become enlightened is sitting in this Vajra seat. And so I sat there uh, as, as the night started to draw in and the people left the temple area and I was pretty much alone. I'm not totally alone, it's impossible to be totally alone in India. <laughs> And this uh, little dog, tiny, tiny little dog, there's lots of stray dogs in India that don't have a home. A tiny little thing came and sat on my lap and uh, I let him sit there for a while and then I made a little bed out of some candle papers that people take off the candles and they throw on the ground and they just bed and put him on this bed and then he let back on my lap and I put in and they had this kind of whole thing going with this dog. I was sitting there trying to contemplate the Buddha. So, and then eventually it came, so I gave up and just let the dog sit there in the lap. And this kind of, kind of relationship started to grow with this dog. And then I got up to go. It's getting late. I didn't want to stay out too late. And then as I was moving off, this dog leapt for my leg and just held on for grim death. And I was walking along with this dog. <laughs> And then I sat down and I thought all the ways I could bring this dog back to England. I just went in my bag and get it through customs. There must be a way that I can sneak it back. And, and I thought well, there's millions of dogs like that in India. There's millions of beings, you know, that, that, 
and it just it just brought up for me this whole sense of the um, the vastness of the Buddha's vow when he talked about um, um, being there for the the enlightenment or the freedom of suffering for all living beings and perhaps that was a manifestation of some bodhisattva in that dog to to uh, relate that to me somehow um, essentially there is you know, there is this uh, um, connection that we have with with other living beings as the, the heart becomes more purified and we see other people less from our own desires or needs or projections there's there's more just this resonance with the with the um, struggle or the pain of life and the natural response of that to to want to 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 understand that to respond somehow and I think over over time not that I sort of dwell a lot on the Buddha but just this appreciation for the enormous vow power the Buddha, the different, whether they're true or not, or one believes them or not, all the different lifetimes apparently that that are that are recorded of how the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, when he was a Bodhisattva, worked on different uh, qualities, uh, qualities of generosity or renunciation, or wisdom, all the, the spiritual faculties, how he would spend time or, or make great efforts to, to perfect these what they call parameters or spiritual powers or energy that takes us across the sea of suffering and sometimes in, in just one lifetime he would work on just one one energy like, like generosity or patience or renunciation and I think that not to contemplate that in a way that one feels you know totally overwhelmed like we're talking earlier at tea time it's a difficulty with talking about these things uh, but to see that to be encouraged to see that actually there was there what there is causes that we or, or seeds that can be planted that lead to awakening it's it's not necessarily a haphazard affair that there are there's definitely a path that was laid out when the Buddha realized his enlightenment he talked about um, a path leading to the an ancient city he didn't say he discovered the Dharma or he discovered uh, the, the true nature of reality he says it's always there but I, he, he rediscovered it and then had this extraordinary ability to lay down teachings reflections that would last through till this time which is quite awesome because many people have the same realization of the Buddha but not the same capacity to lay down a path or guidelines that can can help us so when we we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha in, in a way we're connecting ourselves with this uh, with, with connecting our journey with this this tremendous power that the, uh, of awakening that the Buddha embodied and little by little embodying that ourselves and we might seem presumptuous say well I'm not like the Buddha at all but little by little uh, realizing that there, that there is this potential that we have to, to embody this, this quality of awakenedness to wake to the nature of, of, uh, of the Dharma realm to, to awaken to 
more and more clearly to suffering, to grasping, to, to learn more and more how to, to let go, not to follow tendencies that are going to be harmful and to cultivate tendencies that are going to support. And this is something, this is the work, this is what we're doing, we're trying to do at least. And as this <coughs> quality of, of Buddha, obviously it has to be internalized, the refuge has to be very immediate. If you look at the Pali, when it talks about um, I go um, Buddhan Sarananga Chami, it's not like I went or I'm going, it's I go, it's always in the present tense. So our connection with this quality of Buddha has to be really, for it to be realistic or realizable, has to be very immediate, has to be something we can access. Because if we focus, I mean, it's wonderful to contemplate the historical Buddha and his qualities and the work that he did and the way he taught. But then that can still be very dualistic. So when we're talking about trust, we're talking about trust at tea time, this is a very important area for us to investigate what, where do we put our trust, or where, where does faith arise from. And for me, um, when we talk about trusting the Buddha, or trusting that, if one, one can talk about it as innate awareness, it's not something one can actually grasp or hold or make a sense of self out of. And that's why it's so challenging for us, because the tendency is to want to make an object, a sort of something firm, that we can say, oh, this is it, I got it, this is a refuge, this is <laughs> I've got my chunk of awareness. But it's not like that. And, and, and we have to, in a way, make a, a, a different kind of movement, which isn't so natural for us to make. Our natural movement towards the conditions of life is to grasp, out of ignorance, out of not seeing clearly, to hold. Um, it's what these hands are for, <laughs> grasping things. And so the tendency to, to act, the, the, the movement to have to actually let go, to relinquish, we're not very used to that, we don't trust that. Uh, it's very hard for us to... I remember when I used to do judo <laughs> in another lifetime, yes, another lifetime. And uh, I used to... Uh, I did it for about ten years when I was a, uh, a kid. And it's a great sport, but I managed to break my collarbone, so I had to stop. And uh, But there was one judo throw, which is called a sacrifice throw, where you had to actually throw yourself on your back first. And it's a great risk. <laughs> and as you're throwing yourself on your back, you put your foot up into the other one's hara, and then you sort of throw them over your head. Great, spectacular throw. And, uh, and it's a bit like that with a Dharma practice sometimes. It's sort of in a way relinquishing hold when everything in us says that's madness you know if I want to find a refuge if I want to find security I need to grasp I need to hold on I need to find permanence but we can't expect to, to do that in you know I mean some people can do it in one fell swoop but that hasn't been my experience we do it in little ways little moments when we we see the pain of holding Our teacher, and one of our teachers, Ajahn Chah, said 70% uh, of the work is to see how much we're holding on, holding on to our fear or our anxiety or our, our, our impatience, 
our sense of self, however it operates, 70% is just being able to locate that and feel the tension of it. And then you try and let go. <laughs> and he said, well, that's 70% of the work. It's just to keep, to, to focus and see where is that sense of tension? Where does it arise? Anxiety about the future, memories of the past, um, different forms of desire desire to, to become, to take birth, to find solidity. Uh, what, however it manifests, on a subtle or more, more coarse level, this sense of holding. And gradually as we start to see, we can start to trust this process of just re- relaxing, relinquishing. So in, even in this anapanasati, the mindfulness of the breath, we're actually, in a way, it's a, it's a process of relinquishment, relinquishing our attachment to thought. We're very, very addicted to our thoughts, and it's very hard to get thought into perspective while we, we're so addicted. We feel if we let go of our thoughts, then I'm going to die, I'm not going to be here, I'm not going to exist. I'm not, I'm not going to be no one. Uh, so again, it's this movement to actually trusting, begin to trust the sense of just not having to grasp, not having to hold and feeling the space of awareness just supporting, just being and fear will be there sometimes fear will come up different hindrances which I wanted to touch on because this is what we're beginning to well not beginning to I mean, <laughs> we've all experienced them a lot but I want to focus or just um, point to uh, aspects of um, in the teachings when they talk about hindrances or obstacles or, or I mean that's one way of looking at them actually these ultimately these so-called hindrances become energies that really can help us that we can befriend but initially, we can talk about them as hindrances on, on, the, on the path. Um, and we've, all, we've met them, been talking about them at tea time today. And it's important to recognize these, to recognize them for what they are, not to, to necessarily uh, deny them, move away from them, suppress them, or particularly believe in them, but to recognize these different obstacles that appear, obstacles to, to peaceful abiding. I mean, there's many different manifestations of the, of the basic, what they call the basic five root hindrances. There's many different ways that they operate, but I can just talk about very briefly these five so that we can more consciously recognize these as they appear. The first one is called desire or craving, tanha, it's a Pali word, and there's different ways that that manifests, an energy that's in a way seeking birth, seeking or looking, sort of looking here, looking there, sort of, uh, whether it's a desire for some experience through the senses that's pleasing, pleasing sight or sound or taste, touch, pleasing thoughts, pleasing feeling, uh, whether it's a desire even to, even the desire t- that we have around our meditation experience to be more peaceful than we are, blocks us from really being in touch with how it actually is. 
this sort of desire energy in a way is very can be very subtle whether it's a, just the sort of raw uh, energy of desire sometimes we feel in meditation just wanting a sense of wanting wanting something not even knowing exactly what we want a sense of longing and wanting or sexual desire that can sexual fantasies can come up in abundance in meditation sometimes when the mind gets dull or boring or nothing much happening and the mind can move off into fantasy realms uh, that's something we can and again seeking some sense of rebirth seeking connectedness the the, the energy of desire in a way is 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 sort of moves has this sense of I'm not complete unless there's some sense of um, desires always restless looking for for birth for a sense of completeness uh, in the world of change and that can be slowly transformed as we work with desire that energy is not to say it's bad but to recognize that if we don't know it if we're not wise to that energy then we can be pulled all over the place and gradually as that energy becomes more purified it can be aspiration, can be used as something to support uh, our awakening. Or well, the opposite form of desire to get something, to find birth, to find an identity in the changing world is the opposite movement is uh, called Wipoetanha, which is aversion or not wanting. Not wanting to be here, not wanting the pain, not wanting the restlessness, not wanting the sleepiness. And these two can actually operate together. We can want something, and underneath that wanting can be not wanting to be here or be with the way things are. So it gets quite, <laughs> quite subtle. But it's wonderful to just see that sometimes when we're sitting here agitated and the mind is restless and looking for something else. If we don't notice it, then we kind of believe that and we're just in this state. Maybe we rush off and find something we feel will be satisfying. But in the, as a meditator, someone contemplating these forces of the mind, we can just recognize, oh, what's going on now? Oh, that's, that's interesting. That's bhava dhanha, the desire to become, to find birth, to become something, become happy, become successful, whatever. Or Wipuwa dhanha, the desire to get rid of the way things actually are in this moment. Or kamha dhanha, the desire to fulfill ourselves, to find fulfillment through the realm of the senses. So these, the Buddha talked a lot about these three forms of energy that moves us. Um, desire not to exist, that's another powerful one we can feel sometimes. That's what suicide's about. Uh, and, and I expect we've all felt impulses sometimes of not really wanting to be around. Sometimes we really love life, and then other times we can get the opposite. Um, then the other, other two um, sort of almost opposite energies which we 
start to contemplate and we mentioned today was sleepiness and restlessness sort of dullness the mind goes into dullness uh, and again there's different reasons why that, that maybe we're tired maybe there's uh, physical illness sometimes if, I'm, if you've ever had ME I don't know if any of you have had this condition but I've had uh, I've had not seriously but I've had it have still strains of it and you can feel really really very listless very tired and one recognizes how the the body the energy of the body affects the mind states they're very much connected and that's not easy an easy state to work with and then the mind is in that kind of listlessness well there can be a dullness because again similar to this desire not to exist there can be just a way that we operate in life where we avoid or, or go in or, or not really want to be sensitive to life or open because it's hard to be open and sensitive to life it's a painful experience often and so we can find different strategies and one of them is just to sort of fog out or to to not really uh, you know to be there and so when we start to meditate that if we've developed that tendency very strongly that will appear in our mind so working with with investigating sleepiness dullness, beginning to become familiar with it, the edges of it when we, seeing if we can catch the moments when we go into the fog sometimes there's a strong pull to go into that state <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, I wouldn't call it wakefulness but it's, it has a sort of a kind of foggy peacefulness to it just kind of sometimes as a meditators we can find that space a kind of tranquil fogginess and hang out there for ages <laughs> so we have to be very very mindful of that uh, pitfall <laughs> and then the opposite is restlessness where we sort of bounce off the walls we come in to sit down and we just feel so impatient and restless and uh, agitated and worried mind just, just caught in this agitated restless state the body and again it can be connected with the food we eat or drink coffee or whatever and it also can be a habit of mind if we've had a very busy active compulsive life and then we stop to meditate we're going to feel that agitation so these are two areas where there's an imbalance if you like and there's samatha, the samadhi meditation with the breath starting to recognize and bringing these states into awareness and the last one is, is more tricky to talk about um, which is, is, they call it doubt or, or the mind in a doubting, worrying state agitate, it's similar to restless but it's more it's not the doubt, because there is a way of talking about doubt in practice where it can be useful like inquiry or, or looking into uh, in a way like the Zen practice uses doubt a lot the koan practice to put the mind in a state of not knowing like the question, who are you? who's sitting here? who's talking? and you can see the mind like this and then there's a state of having to acknowledge the don't, what they call the don't know and and accessing that don't know in a way is also an inroad into <coughs> awareness into non-grasping but then there's a level of doubt that isn't that 
it's more an agitation uh, when the mind is, is, is sort of trying to figure things out. What should I do? What should I do with my life? What, uh, am I doing the right? Should I watch my breath now, say a mantra? Or maybe I should, should I um, concentrate on the crown chakra? Or perhaps I should look at the heart or maybe the abdomen or stay with the whole body? Or maybe I should do some Vipassana? And, and if we actually start, we can say, well, that's doubt. We can actually see that as a state that keeps us in a sense of turmoil or agitation. Um, and there's a lot of doubt. I mean, the sense of self is a doubtful thing. Actually, it's pretty, uh, as we look into it more from a meditative point of view, and this is a whole other area which I don't want to get into tonight because you must be getting tired. Um, but the, but I mean, we were talking about ego and how that has a function, ego boundaries and so on and so forth. But there's another level when one can talk about the sense of self being illusory or not that solid, which we start to really see as, as we contemplate, as we meditate. How can you grasp who one is in a concept, in a, in a memory, in a perception, in a feeling? It, well, we can't. It's just a flow of, of uh, conditioned phenomena. Um, so, in a way, as being in, in you know, identifying or being a sense of self, there's always going to be a feeling of doubt underneath that or uncertainty, which we we compensate with in various ways, being certain or having views or opinions or seeing the world this way or that way. And sometimes it's quite disconcerting as we start to meditate and open the mind and acknowledge that doubtfulness because our certainties can dissolve. Our views can dissolve, and then we're having we're left with having to actually come to terms with the uncertainty of life, the not knowing, the void, the the the, the lack of security in our what we where we found security. So that that is not this is these are delicate, I think, areas to work with. I don't think one should go in with a steamroller and just sort of crush everything, yeah. <laughs> um, which um, I've I've experienced that. It's, it's not, I don't think it's the best approach, but to, to realize these are dismantling some of our old structures that we've lived by and opening, as, as someone was saying, when you, in a way, let, offer up the ego, it allows an openness for something new. But this is a, I feel this is something that uh, is quite delicate, uh, needs respect. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of confusion around this area. <coughs> um, confusion of levels. But we can go into that more as the retreat goes on. Um, so as we continue with our meditation, we're going to be slightly shifting the emphasis from we've been working with the anapanasati, the mindfulness, the breath. And we're sort of just broadening it more now into this uh, beginning to contemplate just the nature of mind, the nature of the states that come up, different uh, to allow the breath to be there as a, as a 
point of stability or as a reference point. But I feel that we can go into that tomorrow, so um, I just offer these reflections for tonight and finish there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.